It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name's James True Penny. This is my show. And today we're recording slightly later than normal on the Monday morning, so you're not going to get this on the Monday afternoon. Apologies for the lateness. But we only had certain amounts of time and availability. This was a long show we wanted to do. I wanted to do this show for a while, uh, ever since it became available. But it was available in Japanese, like, uh, details and stuff a while ago. We never got round to it. And we finally, there's finally been a release this week. Uh, actually, old Dave Meltzer talked about this on Twitter, and that's where I found out about it. There is a, an English language, not English language recording, but, like, all of the match details are in English language, which makes it easier for Western fans to understand. Of the very infamous or famous Bridge of Dreams Dome Spring Full Bloom show. It was a freelance show, kind of, run by um, the Weekly Pro Wrestling Magazine, uh, which was owned by the Baseball Publications, which is a, a, a funnily enough, a wrestling magazine <laughs> in Japan. And they run a show at the Tokyo Dome on the, I think it was, what date was it? It would be the 2nd of April, 1995. And to join me to watch this show, this epic, ridiculously stupid show that could only happen in one place at one time, is Mr. John Dinsdale of Steel Chair Magazine. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm the reason it's incredibly late. And, yeah, this this was six hours. Yes, it took you a didn't long while. You didn't warn me it was going to be six hours. Well, I said it was going to be five hours, then realized it was going to be six after I told you it was going to be five. <laughs> Thankfully, it was worth it. It was. There were 13 matches on this card from 13 different promotions. Let's just run that by you again. There were 13 matches from 13 different promotions. In fact, some of these promotions were sworn enemies. Okay. <laughs> and a fair um, few of them I hadn't even heard. Yes, exactly. This was ridiculous professional wrestling which will tell you how much power weekly pro wrestling magazine had in the japanese wrestling industry in the 1990s i mean people like wally got the well the the actual uh uh what's the word publisher of weekly wrestling magazine was a guy called tarzan yamamoto but also people like wally yamaguchi who was a writer for that magazine had incredible sway in the wrestling industry in japan he was um uh he was a producer for all japan women he was a manager for michinoku pro he was a referee for all japan women he was uh, an agent for different people ended up in the wwe where you probably know him most famously as the leader of kai and tai and the person who tried to remove valvinus's penis and sadly passed away last year but while yamaguchi was involved in everything in japanese pro wrestling and these cards could not exist without him John, you will have heard about this match undoubtedly from Mick Foley's biography where he said he nearly set fire to the, the building. What's your thoughts on this particular card and the legend that you knew around it, or did you know much about it other than what Mick had said in his uh, Have a Nice Day biography? So obviously I'd heard the Mick story, which funnily enough got reiterated on Botchamania a couple of a few weeks back as well, so that's what brought it back to preference me because the whole match apparently went wrong from start to finish but as for the card itself like I knew of its existence I knew of its sort of legendary status and the fact that for the longest time nobody even knew a copy of it existed it just sort of existed in second hand stories of 
this sort of madness that lasted, I think, seven and a half hours for the people <laughs> in the stadium, which is about half a WrestleMania. Yes, it is a long-ass time. Uh, if, if you if you talk to historians, they all say it's a long-ass time. <laughs> but it did literally have, and 60,000 people went. It wasn't quite a sellout. It wasn't the full-on 64,000. But the match quality was astounding because everybody was trying to outdo everybody else for a start. Um, and the names in it are just insane. Should we should we go match by match, or is there anything else you want to say? Um, other than the fact that I was surprised by how many people I actually recognised. <laughs> my nineties. Uh, Considering this match, what? Sorry, this show wasn't even out when I was born. No. Uh, I'm pretty surprised I recognised as many as I did. <laughs> Okay, then. We'll start with the Joshi match from all Japan. Sorry, JWP, J- Japan's Women's Project. That was Candy Akutsu, Dynamite Kansai, Fiyose Noshi, and Hikara Fukuoka. They defeated Cutie Suzuki, Devil Masami, Hiromi Yagi, and Mayumi Ozaki in 17 minutes and 29 seconds of an absolutely blistering Joshi match. This was hard-hitting Devil Masami and Dynamite Kansai really banging into one another. This was brilliant. I love this. I love, could watch these eight wrestle all week. You know, Cutie Suzuki and Mayumi Yuzaki on the same side is just insane. It, just really good. Love this match. What were your thoughts on this one? I think I was watching a car crash more than anything. Considering <laughs> there's some, like, shoot fighting matches on the card, this and the AJW match seem to hit just as hard, if not harder. Well, One yeah. thing you can never take away from Joshi wrestlers is how hard they hit each other. Now, this was insane. <laughs> I was watching, I'm like, right, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. Oh, now she's dead. Oh, nope, she's just been killed. And I'm like, you start watching, it's like, oh, no, they're, they're getting up. I, I think I'd just lie down after that one. It's like, yep, that's, that's my back door. I'll, I'll just lie here. Yeah, no, no, this was, they were, they were really going for it. A special devil, a special devil uh, Masami and Dynamite Kansai, who both knew what the stakes were in this. You know, in a couple of months' time, all Japan women, and they would all go back to the Tokyo Dome. But they had to prove their worth against the men. This was the opportunity they'd been looking for. And it was a shame that it was only a half-full stadium, but they set the tone for the evening. There you go, lads, top that. And uh, Meltzer gave it four and three-quarter stars. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, I think it's deserved. They fit yes. a hell of a lot in 17 minutes. They did. Everything plus the kitchen sink. Um, and, you know, from that, we go from the sublime to the ridiculous, because LLPW, for their efforts, decided to destroy their biggest baby face with their biggest heel. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, the, that was the story. I just... They sort of came to the, to the ring. There was about two minutes of fighting, and then it was over. I was like, what? Yes. Well, do you know the story of LLPW? I do not. This that's that's was... uh, okay. So, Japan Women's Project started in 1990, and it was it was founded by uh, one of the beauty pair um, whose name I can't escapes me now, but I can't remember her name. Sato. Anyway, her. Yes, Charlie Sato. I think. Not quite right. Anyway, but yes. Harley Sato. Ha- not Harley Sato. That's a different girl. That's one of her trainees. That's the person uh, fighting. Yes. Anyway, Ella, JWP was formed in 1990. By about 18 months in, they realized they had essentially two rosters. One roster of entertainers, 
pro wrestlers and one roster of shooters. So they had a bit of a vote and split into two companies. So they were under the Japan's Women's Project banner, but LLPW was a separate company and they didn't do shows with JWP. They didn't cross-promote other than like the big shows. They were very much their own entity. And it was all very much about serious, straight-ahead pro wrestling with violence. Your kind of thing, actually, to be honest. But it was shoot style with a bit of brawling involved as well. Whereas JWP was much more aerial and entertainment-based characters than that. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, going into this match, Harley Sato, who was really hard, but a pro wrestler, and Shinobi Kandori, who was the hardest person you've ever met in your life, and then harder, <laughs> former bronze, Olympic bronze medalist in judo, the most like insanely tough woman I've ever come across, um, apart from perhaps Akira Hokuto. And they wrestled each other, and it was insane. Um, yeah, Harley Sato and Shinobi Kandori. So Kandori, they did this as an MMA fight. They, they didn't do it as a wrestling match. This was a straight-up shoot fight, and unsurprisingly, Kandori won in a minute and 12 seconds. Yeah, it was a very blink-and-you'll-miss affair. It was. There wasn't a lot to this. Perhaps one would say a missed opportunity, but they certainly caused a stir. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, here's 17 minutes of Joshi car crash. What's next? Oh, a minute and 17 of someone basically dying. Oh. <laughs> it was not the traditional Joshi match of any stretch of the imagination. It was a different style fight, as they say in Japan. It's kind of like following off a Money in the Bank match with a Goldberg match. Yes. In terms of pace. Except Shinobi Kandori is way tougher than Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, there's no denying that. <laughs> <laughs> so from the sublime to the ridiculous, Blizzard Yuki and Minami Toyota take on Aja Kong and Kyoko Inoue. 17 minutes and 40 seconds, and there is absolutely no doubt that Minami Toyota and Aja Kong were having this. <laughs> oh, man. This... Toyota walks to the ring like she fucking owns the place. This is my office. I have come to work, and I am the best wrestler in the world. Aja Kong has murder on her mind. It can only get better from there. Blizzard Yuki, who, to be fair to her, never had a great run in All Japan Women because she kind of came wrong at the wrong time. She was like kind of nervously asking Toyota questions, and you could see as they walked down the art ramp, and you could see that Toyota's like going, no, no, you do not ask at this moment. <laughs> this is not the time. <laughs> But good God. And Kyoko, in a way, as, you know, as good as she is, she's along for the ride <laughs> in this particular setting. She was yeah, the, she uh, seemed to fare better than Yuki did. She did. I mean, Kyoko, in a way, is a better wrestler than, than Blizzard Yuki was. But, yeah, this, this was just insane. And Aja Kong, Miami Toyota, peak of their feud. Toyota has just taken the title away from Kong. Oh, it was good. What do you I, think of this, John? I love this. Like, I'm always down to see an Aja Kong match, but this was... I was just watching, I was thinking, this is following a shoot fight, and it's somehow more violent. <laughs> like, I'd occasionally have to tab out for a couple of seconds, I come back and someone's in yet another innovative hold, breaking one of their shoulders, and I'm just like, Jesus. Yeah, I think this was like, you know, you look who else is on this card, the Shin Yashimoto, Masachono, Kawada, Misawa, Teiyu. Kenta Kibashi, Stan Hansen, um, Akira Maeda, you know, and these women are here to say, hey, look, we're better than they are. They're certainly <laughs> hitting us hard. 
And we're, we're going to have a better match than they possibly can uh, because we're the best wrestlers in the world. And they are. And this card proves it. If you want to watch this card. Now, admittedly, they were trying really, really hard. And the guys are clearly backed off a notch. But by God, they were hitting hard. And I think you can tell, like, in the All Japan men's match, which is also exceptional later on, they're trying just as hard. But I don't think it's as good as this. This was a lot more sort of compact. There was a lot more... Well, there was less sort of give. They were just like, right, we'll do this, 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 this. It's just like following a car pile up of wrestling moves. They just didn't stop. (laughs) No, but there's so much selling going on in all this as well. Definitely. That's that's what makes it compelling. Minami Toyota is the most compelling babyface I've ever watched wrestle. You know, watching her in paint, actual art. You know, there is an art to what she does that only she can do it can make you feel a certain way. There's a very few people I know I've seen who can do it. Ricky Morton's one, and Ricky Steamboat's another one. But to be that babyface in peril the way Minami Toyota is, is just, she's just so good at it. And Megumi Kudo as well. They just She's just so good at looking, like, death-stricken when she's in a submission hold. It looks like she's in so much pain. But, you know, she's just so good. They also got an appearance from Hokuto. Yes, Akira Hokuto came down to challenge Aja Kong, which is interesting because she wasn't WWA, WWA champion at the time. <laughs> Just wanted to fight. Just wanted to fight. There you go. Yes. Um, but we'll see. Um, yes, but this was just this was just awesome. Just absolutely awesome. Another page in the chapter of Kong versus Tota and Blizzard Yuki and Kyoko in a way were no slouches by any means, but they they were kind of they were kind of superfluous to requirements. I was going to say they were forced to take a back seat. <laughs> And in a way, put some brilliant stuff together. I'm not normally a big fan of in a way, but she was absolutely brilliant in this match. Her submission game was amazing. Oh yeah, she's kind of what she does now. She's kind of transitioning. I think this is where she started to pack weight on. And not that she's overweight; she's incredibly fit. But now she's a big monster wrestler, and I think this is where she started to make the transition from being this slightly build aerial kind of uh, flashy wrestler into something a bit more solid as she got older and realised she couldn't take all those stupid bumps anymore. Which is sort of the sensible route to go. Yeah, Toyota did the same thing. She put on about 40 pounds. She didn't wrestle much different. But that she was when did... we... It's funny that's a call back to the guy you show we watched last time. About... Yeah, yeah. She was about 20 pounds heavier at that point than she was in her peak in AJW. This was her peak. This was, this was when she was the best wrestler in the world. She was better than anyone else on this card on a consistent basis. This was our absolute peak period from about 92 to about 96. There was just no one who could touch her. She was better than Flair. She was better than Kawada. She was better than Kabashi. She could just she could just go with anyone, anytime. Her and Kyoko, in a way, went for an hour-long five-and-a-half-star match at Kurikan Hall in this time period. Jesus. And she was, you know, Kenny Omega and um, Kosha Bushi both say that they aren't trying to emulate like Flair and Steamboat or even Fujinami and, and Nakamura and those guys. They want to be as good as Minami Toyota. They're the ones. She's the, Minami Toyota and Aji Kong are the people they, they really do look up to. So, you know, that was in Chris Charlton's book, I think, in Eggshells. So, anywho, that is an awesome match. You should go watch that. Next up was perhaps the worst match on this card, oh. but there's an interesting story behind it. <laughs> Ray was... Mago defeated Uchumehin 
Silver X in 15 minutes and 11 seconds of the worst wrestling match you'll ever see. Actually, Sorry, it was this, actually, was, this was well, 15 minutes. It was How 15 was minutes this long. 15 minutes. This it felt like a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't actually that bad as far as the nuts and bolts kind of wrestling match was concerned, but unless you actually know what's going on, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, did you know what was going on? No, I saw the title Alien Death Match. I heard that announced, and I'm like, "Oh, cool! It's going to be a sci-fi death match thing." No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's a firing squad bullet club match with alien costumed. In fact, they're not even alien costumes. They look like knockoff horror movie monsters. Yes, they do look like Jason the Terrible, which and is. I'm, just, I'm there good. thinking. It's going to get to a death match. It's going to get to a death match. No, no, no. Shall oh, I explain? Please do, because I, I, I don't know what the hell I watched when I was watching this one. Okay, Ryumi Go started off his wrestling life back in the 1970s um, as part of IWE, the International Wrestling Enterprises promotion that was the third biggest company in Japan. It was kind of the. It wasn't really an indie because it was bigger than that, and it's where Billy Robinson really made his name in Japan to start with. And it was it was big enough that they did an invasion angle of all Japan when they broke up and New Japan as well in the late 1970s. And he was part of the team that went to to New Japan Pro Wrestling. We talked about it really back in the early days of the Beginner's Guide to Japanese Wrestling. Me and Alex talked about it a lot. I think Alex Edwards. Um, anyway, you they went. He went to IWE, and when he went to IWE, um, he became this kind of like a bit more of a serious mid card wrestler, and he was always pretty good. And then, bizarrely, in 1984, he decided that the best move for him, this kind of like very cal- fairly characterless like mid-carder, was to jump ship to the UWF with Akira Maeda and Satoru Sayama. So he became the shoot wrestler, absolute basic match shoot wrestler. And it didn't really work out for the UWF, and it didn't really work out for Ryu Mago either. <laughs> I'm not surprised. No, and he went again in 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 1988. He went with him again to the UWF, um, and then kind of like petered out when the UWF closed because he wasn't really into the UWF. I went to World Japan for a while and competed with them, and he kind of didn't really fit in there. And then he started doing reality TV shows in the late 80s, early 90s, and he was they he discovered this talent for being a straight man and just kind of playing the fool for these reality TV shows, and he got a massive television following. Of just being, uh, you know, backed in the fall, basically. Showing his ass, as wrestling fans would say, or wrestling parlance would have. And that's what he did. And then he built a bunch of indie promotions, which were really incredibly influential around that. I think the promotion, he, I'm trying to remember the name of his promotion, it was called, uh, where are we? Go, Go Gundam. That's it. Uh, this was a promotion that he managed to find funding for got TV deals for, had big crowds for, actually, funnily enough. And it was kind of the precursor for DDT because it was this really weird horror storytelling wrestling system. Okay. So where the hell was that in this match? <laughs> I, See, what you're well, describing sounds really interesting. Why the hell didn't they bring it here? Well, the kind of the deal was his matches were awful and everybody was in on the joke. Right. Okay, so that's the reason why the crowd is going absolutely crazy for this dreadful wrestling match you wouldn't see at your local town hall because the local promoter would say, get get off, get to fuck. I, but yes. I, I don't know if hearing that it's intentionally terrible makes it feel any better. 
Because <laughs> I was still promised an alien death match. You feel I cheated. Hoping, I was hoping it would be some kind of kaiju big battle-esque just clusterfuck. And it they, wasn't. They hadn't opened their mind wide enough at that particular point. I don't know. Fighting someone with a plate taped to the face. They have that idea. <laughs> More plates taped to faces for John. Oh, this one stung. Because I looked at the card and I saw Deathmatch about three times and I'm like, right. <laughs> oh, I couldn't have been more wrong. Okay, then. Well, we'll pull the iron out of the fire with the next matchup, which was better by a long, long, long way. <laughs> um, uh, this is was, this was from the IWA and it featured Leatherface, Shoji Nakimaki and Terry Funk against the Headhunters A and B and Cactus Jack. Uh, Leatherface, Yogi Nakamaki, and Terry Funk did win this match. Four stars from your Meltzer there, back in the day. And essentially, the rules for this one was, there was a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. It was in the ring. The two teams lined up at the ramp, and then they ran to see who could get the baseball bat first. But as And this is a well-famous, well-told story from Mick Foley, because it was in his book, Have a Nice Day. The ring announcer forgot to do the countdown. <laughs> so they kind of stood there gauntless, just like, yes. I'm going to get told. Then, get told. Yes, and then Terry Funk said, well, I guess somebody better run. And as Cactus was the only one who could actually run, <laughs> <laughs> he set off for the ring. When the ring announcer remembered, he was supposed to count down from 10. <laughs> so they I start brawling on the ramp to make up for the time. Yes, so oh, it was, it, it, it had a dreadful start. And then it picked up in pace, and it actually started to work. And then halfway through the match, as Mick Foley again said in the book, he attempted to set fire to the barbed wire boards, which were on the other side. So he used lighter fluid and a, a lighter that he had stuffed well down into his trunks. I mean, like, you know, tucked into his trunks. There are some drag artists proud of the tucking he managed for this. <laughs> and he dug out this lighter from his crotchal area, and then proceeded to set fire to this barbed wire board, which would not set alight no matter how hard he tried. And as he related to the bunk, thing. thankfully, the fire marshal would have shut the building down if he had done. And he would have been come down in wrestling history as the man who shut down the biggest card of all time. But they managed to salvage it and did some absolutely ludicrous stuff to Shoji Nakamaki, who loves that kind of thing. That's all he lived for. Uh, humiliation, pain, and degradation. I, I did Nakamaki. wonder, as time went on, well, <laughs> do you know the story of Nakamaki? I, I do not. This was the first time I'd seen him, and I don't think I've ever heard someone scream quite so much in a wrestling match, despite the fact Terry Funk is also in said match. Okay, uh, you, you may feel somewhat kindred spirit to this. Shoji Nakamaki was a deathmatch wrestling journalist. Oh. <laughs> who decided to give up his writing career and become a professional wrestler. And he started in F the F FMW under Atsushi Anita, and he kind of quit halfway through, and then at the, I think it was the fourth anniversary show, had a match where he came back and had to apologize to Tarzan Goto and, and Atsushi Anita on camera by groveling on the floor. Unsurprisingly, he left long afterwards and moved to the IWA because Goto thought he was quite good. And when Goto got the book in the IWA, he got a bit of a push. He wasn't much of a ring general, didn't know many moves, and kind of bled a lot. Yeah, he spent most of his time being attacked by barbed wire and screaming. 
that was pretty much what he did. Laying as, as again, as Mick Foley quite rightly said, he tended to lay there screaming and bleeding. Yeah, I think he got good at that job. And if Mick Foley believes that you are a lot more, more reckless than he is, you perhaps want to look at your career options. Anywho, you could. I'm sure you can find work as a crash test dummy. <laughs> This went on for 18 minutes and 28 seconds, and despite all the false starts, they managed to salvage it into being a very good matchup. Leatherface and Terry Funk are exceptional professional wrestlers, I have to say that. Leatherface, not a nice bloke, but he is a very good professional wrestler, and Headhunter A and B are just outstanding. And I I knew they were difficult to work with, but I never quite understand why they didn't catch on somewhere else. They were in WWE for about a week. Um, and they did they did a run in CMLL where they became really big names. Their big money runs were in FMW and the UWA in Mexico, as you can probably imagine, and of course in Puerto Rico where they actually came from. Um, but yeah, this is this is a, this is an outstanding match of the of a particular style, and there were some big moves in it, and it told a really great story. It was just an ideal thing that we were looking for for this kind of card. What are your thoughts on it, John? I loved it. It's what I like to class as a violent delight. Just a complete and utter car crash of devastating things no sane person would take mashed up into a small time limit. There wasn't, ironically enough, one of my favourite moments in um, the match is when Terry Funk successfully manages to headbutt one of the headhunters and I'm just thinking, pretty sure he's breaking a wrestling rule there, but they actually go down for it and I'm like, Okay, Terry Funk is an, has an iron head. He does, yes. Um, and much like him, you sort of say that, and you're right for him, Manami Toyota is like one of the best sellers in the game. That's that's Terry Funk for me. Yeah. Because at yeah. one point he gets pretty softly hit with the barbed wire bat and he just falls down like someone's dropped bricks on him. <laughs> and I just love how chaotic everything got. Nakama. Nakamaki getting turned into a barbed wire sandwich, Leatherface in his pyrotechnics laden chainsaw. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm pretty sure I saw Leatherface in action not too long ago at a Freedom show, so I'm surprised he must be pulling the funk run in that he's still active. <laughs> to be fair, he didn't need to do much. His suplex in the odd clothesline and he's fine and just wander around with a detooth chainsaw. I'm pretty sure that's what he did in the match I saw as well. Because it was the John Anniversary Freedom Show. Funnily enough, do you know where he started his career? Where? The AWA and the WWE. Yes, he was Corporal Kirshner. He was part of uh, Sergeant Slaughter's group in the AWA and then started. He he went to WWE as well. Um, Had a run there. Didn't catch on. Um, And then found this character when IWA started doing monster wrestling and he feuded with Freddy Krueger. He was, in fact, uh, uh, Eddie Gilbert's brother, Doug Gilbert. <laughs> that is amazing. Yes. Um, the Freddy Krueger wrestling character was the property, essentially, of the Gilbert family. Tommy Gilbert wrestled as Freddy Krueger in Memphis as a babyface, believe it or not, because obviously, you know, the person you want who rules and controls your dreams and murders you in your sleep as a babyface is Freddy Krueger. <laughs> that sounds like what would happen if I booked a bloody Uh, yes you and jerry lawler like that without the racism um (laughs) man but yeah um and then doug gilbert 
took over the gimmick and took it to Japan where he wrestled Leatherface for the IWA in a car park in Osaka the same night that um, Wing Kanemura got sent through tables by Ghetto and Jeddo of New Japan Booking fame. Anywho, that was that was a long way around to say who Leatherface was. But yeah, it was a real snapshot of IWA wrestling and what was great about IWA wrestling. And then we went from one extreme to the complete other extreme. Pancras. An actual real fighting corporation. A company that was genuinely real. Um, Christopher De Weaver uh, wrestled or fought Minoru Suzuki. Guess who won? <laughs> and I bet they've guessed correctly. Yes. Minoru Suzuki. That would be Minoru Suzuki when he was genuinely one of the most dangerous men on the planet. And Christopher De Weaver. I have really done a lot of due diligence on Christopher De Weaver. I will find out about him. But you give us your thoughts whilst I look Christopher De Weaver, because I'm pretty sure you won't have come across Pancras before, will you? I'm aware of Pancras. Okay. I've seen some Pancras. I'd say early days Pancras. I see, I saw later days Pancras, but I, I love shoot fighting. Like, Josh Barnett's Blood Spot is one of my favourite events to ever happen in wrestling. Or shoot fighting, I guess. But this... This was an odd one, because you don't usually see Suzuki on the back foot. Especially not when it comes to shoot fighting, but De Weaver gave him an albeit very short, but a strong sort of opening, and then Suzuki just sort of trapped him, and that was it. Just tap, or you're going to lose the limb. (laughs) Yes. For those of you who don't know the birth of Pancras, Pancras came out of uh, PWF Gummy, which, funnily enough, I've have a show, have a match on the card, this card next. It's followed it. Yes. Um, Yoshi, Yoshiaki Fujiwara's promotion. Now, when Yoshiaki Fujiwara started to kind of like, uh, how can I put this? The draw of straight up shoot style wrestling didn't necessarily, didn't naturally um, necessarily mesh with the Japanese audience because of like, you know, there was already UWFI about who were doing similar things. So he decided to freshen things up with some characters and a bit of lucha. And the dead serious shooters were like, nope. <laughs> so De Weaver was one of the guys. Miranoi Suzuki, Ken Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, um, Tanaka as well. They all left and formed Pancras. And they took Carl Gotch as their trainer. And Carl Gotch said, why are we having book matches anyway? Why don't we just have regular wrestling matches under old school professional wrestling rules? And that's what became the birth of Pancras. Ken Shamrock and Minoru Suzuki became the Gen and A-Stars. Ken Shamrock went to UWF. So if you don't have this company, you don't have UFC, you don't have like uh, any of the big martial arts companies in the states because they were the ones that Pancras were the ones that defied, that provided the essentially the workforce for UFC to get off the ground in the first place. And it's just damn interesting to watch. Yes, it's fascinating to watch. Uh, Deweaver had a mixed martial arts record of zero and two. So, not the most like successful career for him after this, unfortunately. Huh. Yeah, but to I be fair... Him, I expected him to do better, considering he managed to knee Suzuki in the face and live. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, open it, like openly giving a tiger your hand. I will point out, though, Suzuki was known to carry much inferior fighters to full 15-minute matches just to make sure the draw came through, him and Tanaka were that good they could have straight up shoot fights and look after younger wrestlers and make sure it looked like a 
looked like a decent fight. In fact, they got beat a couple of times dragging people along and then accidentally losing. <laughs> um, yeah, because they, they, they were that good. They were that head and shoulders above anybody else in the shoot fight game that they could actually like essentially string people along for 10 to 15 minutes and then just shut them down when they needed to. I'm pretty sure Suzuki has also used the same band for his entrance theme for the past 30 years. Yes, uh, I can't remember her name, but she, but he's um, he's a massive fan of her music, and I'm trying to remember, I, I'll look it up. I instantly recognised the voice the second a song kicked in. I'm like, it's not Kaz and Nina Rare, but it's it's the same artist, and I'm like, damn, Suzuki really is. Oh, I was gonna. He's been a big fan of her since he was a trainee, and um, it was uh, where is it? I'm going to find it here. It's Yunusuke. I can't remember her name. Uh, if you get a blast of an advert from YouTube, I apologise because it should have the name listed. But yeah, he's used her music forever because he's a massive fan of hers, um, and still gets nervous when talking to her. Are you mean Sorry. Is it Ayumi Nakamura? I just googled it. Yes, that's it. Ayumi Nakamura. He still gets nervous when talking to her and uses the most polite version of Japanese when talking to her. And this is Suzuki. This is Minoru Suzuki. He's, he's... He was obviously a really nice man, but you've also got the intimidation factor... Of this frigging Minoru Suzuki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, it was insane, but there you go. Um, yeah, it was a very good match. It was very watchable and fascinating to see and watch as well. And it lasted so where all we? of about two minutes. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at PWF Gumi, or Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, Carl Greco and Dan Arakawa went up against Yuki Ishikawa and Yoshiaki Fujiwara in a match that was dreadful. <laughs> and Don Arakawa was the reason why it was dreadful. And one of the, you can then see why the guys from Pancras left Fujiwari Gummy because of guys like Arakawa doing comedy spots in the middle of a shoot fight and it made it look awful and the fans for some reason lapped it up but it was just like you could tell this was not an exercise in drawing money uh, considering the talent of the other three guys this should have been a lot better than what it was um, I just, just didn't get this at all it just was like what are you doing no you're on the. This is a perfect opportunity to show your wares. You sit down and you have a classic, or you destroy somebody. That's what everybody else has done. But no, you've decided you're going to put comedy in one of the most serious wrestling companies in the world. No, your thoughts. I, I must admit, I I tabbed out whilst one of the entrances on wrestling. I'm just like, why can I hear the Godfather theme? <laughs> and I'm thinking, right, maybe maybe one of the legends is coming, and I'm like. Who the hell is that? And I saw him stood next to Carl Greco, and I'm like, right, Carl Greco looks like a shoot fighter. PWF, shoot fighter promotion. Why is there a guy in trousers? And then obviously, Ishikawa and Fujiwara, I've heard of, sort of, sort of like, right, so this is going to be a shoot fight. What the hell is this guy doing here? And then as it, <laughs> it sort of went on, I'm like, Oh god, this is a comedy guy. Is he is he trying to go for an eye poke in a shoot fight? And I was like, just continuously watching. I'm like, it's like watching a train like a train pile up in slow motion. I'm just like, I it's hideous, but I can't look away. 
good. But I, I'm sort of there, just like it, he's got to die, right? Someone's got to kill him. This, yes. This can't be what they've picked. Like yeah. you've got Fujiwara in your match, and there is a comedy guy. What? Yes, Yoshiwaki Fujiwara of the Fujiwara Armbar, but of course he just calls it an armbar. Sorry, I will never tire of this joke. <laughs> To be fair, if you weren't going to make it out, I was going to make it. So. Yes. Uh, by the way, Diana Parazzo has insisted that the Fujiwara Rambar will remain her finisher forevermore. <laughs> I mean, she's damn good at it. So She is. She's exceptional oh. at it. Funnily um, enough, speaking of Parazzo, there's a NXT UK did a bloody Hidden Gems episode and it had Tony Storm versus Diana Parazzo and it's an amazing match. How the hell did they never put that on a televised episode? Because they don't know what they're doing. Chelsea, like, Green, I, Chelsea Green and Diana Parazzo had entire weeks of television written that they wouldn't go with. I, I just I always start watching it and I'm just like, this, she's a star, why aren't you using her? <sighs> I have no idea. And I don't know where she goes next because I think she was a bit frustrated with Ring of Honor, but there is the advantage that her boyfriend's the head booker there now, so that helps. Um, and whether she will whether she would entertain Impact or AEW. I think AEW would probably find her most useful. They need a strong backbone for that division. Um, and I think Impact, she would possibly just get outshone by other people. But I think I think it's going to be Ring of Honor. It's going to be Ring of Honor and it's going to be AEW. I would probably suggest Ring of Honor for obvious reasons. But then again, she might want to say, oh, I don't want people saying my boyfriend did it for me. So she might pick AEW, which would be the hard thing to do. Sorry to go on a tangent. It's just because... She's really good at pulling off the Fujiwara armbar, and she did an amazing match recently. I was kind of like, why was she never on TV? And it Vincent Kennedy us, McMahon. And it distracts us from the fact there was a comedy wrestler in a bloody shoot fight. Yes, moving on. <laughs> I tell you what, this this card is a roller coaster. It really is. And then you go from one dip to one massive high with Grand Niniwa, Super Dolphin, Takamichi Noku. Sato, Shiru, and the great Sasuke. 22 minutes, 25 seconds of sheer lucha lunacy from Michinoku Pro. John, what did you think of this? This was amazing. Considering half the wrestlers looked like Power Rangers monsters, and this would be, not be the last time we saw Power Rangers monsters on, a car, on the card, but just, Jesus Christ, this... Taka Michinoku, Sasuke, Yelfa, that he... Oh, everyone was awesome. Shall, shall I explain who everybody is a bit more? Gran Naniwa was the only... Sorry, and the uh, Shiryu and Sato were the only people I didn't I didn't know, and I'm kind of there just like, right, he's a comedy guy. He's actually funny. <laughs> that That is a guy that looks like a blue yeti and not the microphone. And I thought Tenzon was in the match, to be honest. <laughs> well, Grand Aniwa was a crab monster. Obviously. I thought he was a bee. No, no, he's a crab monster. He's he's a crab monster. Big on like baseball out of the Michinoku area, big in the baseball scene there, big fan of baseball. And he was a crab monster and one of his big maneuvers was walking sideways on the ring ropes because he's a crab monster. Oh I saw a gif of this the other day. Yeah, there you go, see? It and he did actually come to the ring with massive crab claws, just to make sure you knew 
He was a crab monster. This is what I get for skipping entrances. See? There you go. Super Delphin, friggin' Super Delphin, founder of Osaka Pro, uh, one of the greatest junior heavyweights who came along in the absolute golden era of junior heavyweights and possibly the best true heel in Japan, one of the best lucha heels ever. Um, Delphin is absolutely awesome. Takamichinoku is friggin' Takamichinoku of the Michinoku Driver, living legend, Kaintai member, Kaintai Dojo, All Japan Pro Wrestling, Suzuki Gun, New Japan, that guy. He was about 12 here. <laughs> and still outshone most of the people in this match. Sato, you do know Sato, because that's Dick Togo. Oh, it didn't it didn't click. Ah, there you go. Every you time I saw his face, I'm like, yeah, I this... know you, but you should be gravelier and more shaped head and then heel. But yeah, that's Dick Togo of Kaintai Dojo, and still retired like six years ago, but still wrestling probably somewhere in a town all near you, because he did a British tour last year. Um, Shiru, you know as well. That would be WCW's Kaz Hayashi. Seriously? There you go. Yes, he would become Kaz Hayashi, currently working for All Japan Pro Wrestling, kind of their junior heavyweight booker, I think, a producer. He certainly has a lot of hands in making terrible matches look good. (laughs) (laughs) For All Japan Television, I've seen some, like, ropey lineups, and he's been in them, and he's just kind of... You could physically see him, like, producing the match on the fly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and Great Sasuke, who's famed mentalist Great Sasuke, who's who's still mental all these years later. And still taking part in deathmatch tournaments. Yes, has stopped his pornography appearances, where he did wear the mask, by the way. <laughs> I... I, have, I don't know how to react to that, to be honest. Oh, also, Ryan Mago, uh, all the thing, looking at Ryan Mago, also did pornography. He did gay pornography and there was a slight backlash against that from, for obvious homophobic reasons. And unfortunately, Ryan Mago is no longer with us. He had a finger injury. It went septic a few years ago and he died in 2009. Sorry that's, to pull on a bit of a downer. That's sad for multiple reasons. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, sad because they're gone and then it's sad because you died of a finger injury. Yeah, not getting your sepsis sorted will kill you. How did we go from the great Sasuke and pornography to toxic fingers? I, I think I, we just answered our own. Yes, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's that's the fella. I have got a, I have got like the most awful injury story I ever heard was in ice hockey. It was a guy who were playing for one of the Detroit Red Wings farm teams, and he punched somebody. He was like the goon. He was their enforcer, and he was in a fight on the Tuesday, and he punched somebody in the face, and. The tooth scraped his knuckles. Yeah, the tooth scraped his knuckles. And then he got called up to the Red Wings. And he went to Detroit the following day. He didn't think about the hospital. And he went to sleep watching his arm swell up. Um, and, of course, he went for his medical. And the Red Wings doctor said, what did you do? He said, I got in a fight and I caught his tooth. He said, oh, yeah, that's gone septic. And uh, it's a good job you came here because otherwise we'd have to remove your arm. And they yeah. managed, they managed yeah. to... That's yeah. Famous war general died as well because he carried one of his enemies' heads and it scraped his leg. I can't remember who it was. I want to say William the Conqueror. There you go. Um, and uh, yeah, the Red Wings doctor saved his arm and he made his major league debut not long afterwards, about three months later. I do remember that story because that would just be embarrassing. So, how did you lose your arm? Ah, you see, someone's tooth scraped me knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> and I lost my multi million dollar contract with the biggest dice hockey team in the world. Uh, because of it. 
Anyway, that would have been terrifying. Anyway, moving along um, from sepsis, <laughs> always a cracking subject for a Monday morning, to Rings, which was Akira Maeda's promotion of the time. It was kind of debuting. Rings was a shoot fight promotion uh, based out of Japan and later in Holland. Sorry, I should say Holland, the Netherlands. Uh, Chris would be mad with me. Christy would be mad with me. Uh, the Netherlands, um, where Akira Maeda promoted essentially booked fights to start with, which evolved into true pro wrestling shoot fights and mixed martial arts shoot fights. Here he defeated Chris Dolman, who was a bit of a game lad, five minutes and 26 seconds. You do have to bear in mind that Akira Maeda was one of the biggest stars in professional wrestling in Japan at the time. I kind of think that the the Pancras stuff was a bit more interesting to watch. Maybe because I have a bit of a better connection with Minoru Suzuki because I've seen more of him than Akira Maeda, and Akira Maeda always seems a bit flat to me. Um, I understand everything he's done and how important he is to the pro wrestling industry, but he always comes off as a bit less characterful to me. I don't know why. What did you think, John? Um, well, I'd never heard of Rings, so I didn't really know what to expect. Maeda's name rung a bell, and then I saw Chris Dolman. I'm like, oh, this will be a pretty interesting fight. And then it it was mostly just map-based stuff, and I was kind of like, this is going on a bit longer than the Suzuki one. Yes, five minutes and 26 seconds. And it's very Greco-Roman. It's very upper body, isn't it? I wasn't particularly thrilled, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's, yes. It, it was the... Just because I think... By proxy, it was the longest shoot fight on the card. It also, unfortunately, became the worst. <laughs> but yes. like the little, the little notes in the description here are like, the forty-year-old Dolman played the first match of his retirement series in Japan. So that was one of his retirement matches, which I suppose makes sense as to why there was a lot of sort of pomp and circumstance after it. Yes, but. Uh, Hate to say it was a bit of a flat retirement match. Yeah, there was. There was also plenty of like we should probably use this opportunity to like say that there was a lot of like uh, greats and the good of professional wrestling history. Luthez, six times NWA heavyweight champion of the world and the man who really kind of put pro wrestling on the map in the nineteen forties and fifties. Um, he made an appearance. He was there to celebrate the co- great Kojaka Kojika's retirement. Um, Cozy Powell of Rainbow. And Deep Purple was there to play uh, the theme one, which was his theme, which was Kojaka's, Kojiki's theme. Uh, Kintaro Oki retired as well. These were guys who weren't really associated with the office, and they were kind of back from the old JWP days before New Japan and All Japan existed. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting kind of historical event. And, of course, a magazine that can do that rather than, you know, you get a bit awkward if it's All Japan honoring people that, like are out of office with New Japan and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was nice to have little feel good moments like that in amongst the arse ton of wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Which we must move on with. Because next, Billy Scott, Masahito Kakihara, and Nobihiko Takada defeated Gary Albright, Jane Ledick, sorry, Jean Ledick, not Jane Ledick. I thought Jane Ledick would be interesting in this matchup. And Kazuo Yamazaki, 15 minutes and 17 seconds. Uh, Now let's give this three and three quarter starts. Of all the shoot fights, this was probably the most interesting of shoot style fights. This wasn't a shoot fight. It was booked, but it was a shoot style fight. It was probably the most interesting because everyone's got fire in this match. They're really after it and they're trying really hard. The strikes are killer. And you kind of start to see the difference where Nobuyuki Takada has taken UWFI away from the old UWF 
especially as you've got Maeda in it before. Maeda's style of match was very map-based, where this is much more kick-based. It's much more exciting. There's much more striking involved. Um, and it kind of it's kind of a precursor for what we see in New Japan Pro Wrestling today. It's much more influential than you think. And yeah, this was really interesting from that point of view, from a historic point of view. And they were all after it. Uh, Gary Albright and Nobuki Takada were the, was the big feud for UWFI at the time period. You, Takada was the heavyweight champion. Albright was being built as the next big bad for him. Um, these uh, UWFI didn't put that many cards together because those kind of matches are high impact. You can't do them very often. and It gets expensive. That's one of the reasons why they were on the financial uppers by the end of this particular year. Um, but they were still drawing big at this particular time. And it was really interesting to watch this matchup in this time period. What did you think of this one, John? This was great. And I, it reminded me how much I loved seeing Gary Albright wrestle. And, um, yeah, the kicks. The, the kicks. I sound like I've got PTSD listening to the kicks. Just those kicks. I think it was Billy Scott got got hit by one at one point and he just crumpled. And I'm like, yep, that's the right reaction. You just stay down. <laughs> You might be one tough son of a bitch, but you just stay down. It's going to get better. If you were wondering how these matches were laid out, uh, the great Nunzio, or Nunzio from ECW, was actually a, a UWFI wrestler. He was a shooter because he was trained by Billy Robinson, and Billy got in contact with these guys. And essentially, he said, the, like, if the match was due to go about 15 minutes, the first 12 minutes, the first 15 minutes of it would be a shoot fight. You would just hit each other as hard as you could for as long as you could, and then you go to the finish. That was it. <laughs> so you maybe work a bit of story in there, but generally speaking, he said it was just it was just hitting each other as hard as you could for as hard as you could stand for fifteen minutes. Yeah, it was basically a case of, right. You two start right. We're gonna go for about five minutes. Right, tag out. Right, we're gonna go into it and start beating each other up, and then right, tagging Gary, and he's just gonna throw everyone about like they're rag dolls. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Like, Gary Albright was perfectly made for this as a, a former wrestler from Nebraska on Nebraska's wrestling team. It was outstanding to this. I must admit, he always reminds me of the American from Bloodsport. He may have been the American in Bloodsport, for all I know. <laughs> I'm going to have to check this now. Where's him to be? Yes, uh, the resemblance was striking. But yeah, this, this was UWFI. This was kind of like the period of where things were going to go downhill for them <laughs> much after they soon started their series with New Japan Pro Wrestling and that was pretty much the company done and then they started a series with War. By the way if you're wondering where War were because they'd been founded by this point SWS had gone off into the horizon and Wrestling Association R, I was doing a Tenru's promotion, they had a big fallout with Weekly Pro Wrestling who weren't covering them the way they wanted to be covered so they st they did their own show with all the other promotions who weren't involved in this. There weren't money left after that. Uh, they did their own show um, uh, at Tokyo to Kurikan Hall across the way there. At the um, exact same time. At the exact same time, just to like annoy people even more. <laughs> Which just reminds me that Gaki Pro ran a show in the bar directly opposite the Tokyo Dome when Wrestle Kingdom was on. Yeah, that's it. It's it's just the way it is, isn't it? So I don't think they did a, a one and one hour one match death match between Miyako Matsumoto and Chris Brooks. Yeah. With Drew Park being used as a dartboard. 
<laughs> which I still think holds the record for being my most read review. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You see? Interesting. Speaking uh, of death matches. Yeah, that's it. Okay, then. We'll move on to, well, two guys who could quite easily claim to be the king of death matches. The next match was FMW's contribution to the evening, and they'd set up a ring off to the side for a little intimate deathmatch action in a no-ropes exploding barbed wire double-hell deathmatch featuring the great Nita, that's Atsushi Nita, in his Kieji Muto-like transformation, and Pogo Dayo in his Kieji Muto-like transformation. There was an awful lot of satin kimono going on in this match, more than you would possibly understand. And to be honest with you, I didn't like this that much. Pogo was trying to essentially murder Sushi Nita for most of this match with his sickle and tried every variation of where he could safely stab him. And I'm, you know, I, I like death matches when they're kind of like not contrived. This was the most contrived thing I've seen FMW put together. And for me, just didn't work. Just, just completely turned me off. I was just like, why are you bothering? Why not just have your straight up match? You know, Pogo's going to lose anyway because he never wins. So we know what's going to happen. At this point, I suppose they were trying to be different and grab attention in a different way, but it just kind of grabbed attention in a way I was not interested in. What did you think of it, John? This was the other um, instance of Power Rangers monsters, considering Pogo's mask as a cyclops. And um, I, love, <laughs> I love the fact the first thing he does in the match is spit poison mist in Nita's face. I was kind of like, okay, this could be interesting. Oh, someone's finally gone into the bad way. Oh, it's it's... Yeah, the the sickle stuff was a bit boring. Yes. I I feel like I'm getting too jaded at this point. It's like, there was still tension there. And I mean, at one point, Pogo's taking the sickle down the throat. I'm like, that that was a bit wince-inducing. Yes. He's just dragging it around in his mouth. And he's like, oh. Yeah. My my point is, is how is that going to win you a wrestling match? It's not. (laughs) But it looks cool. Uh, Considering the rest of it is just sort uh, of Peter lying on the mat with a sickle in his back, or they're uh, slowly dragging each other to the ropes, uh, and then uh, sorry, they 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 kind of realised they couldn't do the stupidly over the top stuff they normally wanted to do, so I guess they decided to play it safe. Well, <laughs> FMW's version of safe, it was all right, but it's it's certainly no exploding barbed wire double held death match in a cage no it, which is what they did the previous year I think at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium which was oh, good yeah. this this wasn't good but there you go I remember seeing the great Nita take on the great Muta in a similar sort of match and it was way more interesting That was this was before Onita's retirement and before he left FMW for New Japan Pro Wrestling he also ran, wrestled Masahiro Chona and Ricky Chosu as well. It was a big series of matches, much kind of like the Brock Lesnar deal. He didn't do the house shows and stuff. He just did big matches, and it was all death matches with those big names. Because once upon a time, New Japan did actually do death matches. Just for a short period of time. From about 92 to about 99, there were occasionally some big death matches. The first actual big bloodbath match I saw that was you could consider a death match was Tiger Jeet Singh versus Ricky Chosu at star for the greatest 18 martial arts championship in the Tokyo Dome underneath Flair and Fujinami um, I mean it was dreadful because Tiger Jeet Singh was in it 
but <laughs> there was blood everywhere in that match. Yeah, um, but yeah, and then after that, they dabbled occasionally, um, but very rarely because it wasn't really their bread and butter. It's a bit like, you know, Warburton's making cake, just not what they do very well. They make bread, so they do bread. Leave cake to Mr. Kipling. Or Mr. Kipling making cars. <laughs> Imagine a car made of cake. Yeah, you want to know whether to drive it or eat it. And you're just like, I've got to get to work, but I'm also very hungry. You get stuck well, in traffic, have a gear stick. Just, I'm just going to take the seat out. I'm just going to take a bit of the passenger seat. Yes. Right then, moving on. <laughs> I think we've analysed that one enough. Uh, next up was we're into semi-main event time. And we've got Akira Deyu, Johnny Ace and Toshiaki Kawada versus Kenta Kabashi, Mitsuhiro Misawa and Stan Hansen in a time limit draw, believe it or not, in what possibly could be the most amazing match of stardom on this show. I mean, it was the top four workers in the company, the four pillars of King's Road, that'd be Taiyu, Kawada, Misawa and Kabashi, and their two biggest drawing baby faces, well, two biggest drawing Asians, uh, Johnny Ace and Stan Hansen. There was tension here because Teyu and Kawada were teaming together. Uh, Misawa and Kawada used to team together. So they had Kabashi and Ace used to team together. The Johnny kind of turned heel with, when he went to join Steve Williams. Or Steve Williams at the time, I have to teach him how to be a bad guy properly. <laughs> <laughs> he just stands there smiling, being blonde. Um, but this was, this was outstanding. This was essentially... The six best workers in the company having the best match they could possibly have and going to an half-hour time limit draw, which is something all Japan never did. <laughs> um, all the matches on this card were half an hour time limit draws, and this was just just brilliant, just so well done, exactly what the company needed by six guys who knew exactly what they were doing. John Laurinaitis gets a lot of stick for his management run in WWE, and quite rightly, because he did some stupid stuff. However, he was a perfectly good professional wrestler who could hang with some of the best wrestlers in the world and did not look out of place. He wasn't like, you know, Akira Teyu or anything, but he was exceptionally good at what he did. Stan Hansen is just so over in this match and always is. You know, you talk about the biggest star in Japan being Hulk Hogan from the gauging point of view, but Hansen ran him a very, very close second. And Hansen was just so over in this matchup. And it just rolls back and forth as a proper all Japan Kings Road style tag match, which is where it's supposed to be. And they show off their wares to a massive audience because they never went to the Tokyo Dome. Baba didn't see the point. It was making enough money at Budokan Hall. You know, at this point, Budokan Hall was making doing shows on one weekend on a Saturday night. And they had announced tickets after that show for the next show a month later. They wouldn't announce the matches. The tickets would sell out. No matches announced. Budokan Hall was full every month for about eight years. They didn't need to tell you what matches were going to happen. You, you just went. You bought the tickets because you knew it was going to be the best wrestling you'd ever see. I know where GCW get their selling tactic from then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Smaller halls, pack them in tight. 14000 at Budokan Hall when you're paying $100 a ticket is better than, the, better than doing the Tokyo Dome when they're paying $5 a ticket. Can't go wrong. No, and they made their money, and it's less overheads because you don't have to worry about like you know you have you got the same you got less security staff, you've got less marshalling to look after, you've got less people to look after, so you don't have as many fire regulations to worry about. 
and you don't have the you know you don't have all the mess and strain and you can make as much money as you want to all japan was essentially a license print money for giant baba and he'd made money hand over fist he was probably in fact i could probably argue at this point in 95 Probably all Japan were making more money than Vince McMahon was in the same time period, I would think. I think if you looked at the entire Japanese industry put together, they were probably making double what WWE was in this time period, because you're talking about the steroid scandal. It was house shows were dead. There was TV ratings were through the floor. They were going into a massive creative slump. This All Japan, it was an argument who was the biggest wrestling company in the world. It was either New Japan, All Japan, or All Japan Women. And I would think it was probably, from a money-making point of view, it was All Japan Men's wrestling from a numbers of people watching it's probably all japan women and from a big crowd point of view it's definitely new japan but what's your thoughts on this match because we've not talked much, talked much about all japan wrestling with you john i've not really seen a lot of all japan like obviously i've seen the stars of it i've watched a lot of kabashi a lot of misawa a lot of tayu a lot of kawada but just as a promotion AJ, ajpw just never clicked with me and i that's probably more to do with me as and the style of wrestling I'm into, which is weird because I love I love King's Road style fight. I saw the team of Stan Hansen, Kenta Kabashi, and Mis- Mitsuharu Masara, and I was just like, "Well, that's a wet dream team right there." <laughs> <laughs> I sent you that message. It was like, because yeah. that that is genuinely some of the best wrestlers on the planet put together against more of the best wrestlers <laughs> on the planet and Johnny Ace. And I just thought they're like I didn't even mind it was a draw. No, of course Because those last sort of five minutes where they're like, oh crap, we're coming to the end of the match, it, it it just turns into a whole different beast. Everyone's just out for blood. They're like, crap, we've got to get this done. Right. I'm gonna hit him. I'm gonna hit him. I'm gonna hit him. and it's You've sort of had this deliberate, paced-out affair, and then all of a sudden it's just a whirlwind of everyone trying to kill everyone, <laughs> and they don't get it done. You see, I think it's Kabashi is just about to go for another pin, and it stops, and he just looks like he wants to murder someone. <laughs> I do find it interesting, because most of the wrestling you watch would not exist without All Japan Pro Wrestling. You know, like FMW... BJW, they're all based off the King's Road style, aren't they? And it's interesting that you you have a disconnect to the originators of that particular style. These six men, essentially. It, classic AJPW, I'm more familiar with than modern day AJPW. It's just the company on a whole is one of sort of my lesser seen yeah. Japanese companies. And again, I'm not sure why it is just a lot of the time the wrestling doesn't connect with me. Fair enough. I can understand that. That's reasonable. A lot of people say you've got to be quite patient to watch AJPW and I'm not necessarily known for my patience. <laughs> yes, it's the storytelling style. It, it's all, it all happens in the last five minutes, but if you don't get the first five minutes, it's not going to work. Like watching film noir, basically. I see, I love noir. There you go, you see. <laughs> just think of it as a as a Cinemac 1930s budget film noir, then you go, and then you'll then you'll see it. It's it's funny because I watch I watched a match like this, and I can just sort of see the influence it's had on guys like Eddie Kingston, Chris Dickinson, David Starr. The the types of people who like still try like uh, Eddie Kingston 
calls himself the new king of the King's Road. Yeah. And you can sort of see where he took inspiration in this match. Yeah, he's he's very much of that Stan Hansen, Misawa, uh, Kawada style. And you forget how hard Kawada hits as well. Oh, what... <laughs> Them Kawada kicks uh, just, are just insane. And the fact that Stan Hansen no-sold them. <laughs> he just got kicked as hard as he possibly could in the head six times. He just stood up and clotheslined him. Like, good God, man. That was Hansen in a nutshell, though, wasn't he? Oh, Hansen's insane. Absolutely insane. There's a story of, like, Ted DiBiase used to tag with him when Bruiser Brody passed away. And Hansen basically said it was, like, the biggest honor of his wrestling career was, like, tagging with Hansen. And he said, we'll be in Currican Hall. And now you've seen, like, old tapes of Currican Hall. There's a little, and still, not Currican now, but New Japan still uses a similar fencing deal. It was a fence all the way around the ring, and you had a gate on either side, so the heels came from one dressing room, and the baby faces come from another dressing room, like they do now. Anyway, they're going down the aisle, and Hansen kicks the gate open, and he takes one step forward, and the gate swings back right into his balls. <laughs> and it's Hansen. He's, like, kicked it, and it bounces back straight into his crotch. And he just puts his hand in the air and goes, youth, which is his catchphrase. And then walk, grits his teeth and walks into the ring and gets up. And he's still jogging and moving because he's Stan Hansen. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he's just falling over like, oh, that, that was yeah. terrible. Oh, and then he get, uh, anyway, he said to get to the ring, I asked me, you all right, Stan? And he goes, nope. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he no-sold a fence to the nuts at full force. Because he's Stan Hansen. <laughs> I just remember watching him fight with Vader and thinking someone's going to die at the end of this. Yes. Well, someone lost an eye. So. <laughs> oh, that was the match where Vader just popped it back in, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, just just one of those things. I like, Jim Cornette told the story. It's an unrelated, but unrelated guy. But Big Bubba Rogers, big boss man. Just yeah. one of my favourite no-selling stories. Cornette used to tell a story of... Uh, the Midnight Express would be delivered to a pay-per-view one night by a limousine and Big Robert Rogers was their bodyguard. He'd been basically been given like he'd been given to Jimmy as their is his heater to look after him and season him, make him like look like a threat. Anyway, Stan and Bobby get out of the car and Jim gets out of the car and Big Bubba Rogers is like stood at the doorway being their bodyguard and the chauffeur shuts the car door. Um, anyway, Jim's just hears this kerfuffle behind him, and Big Bubba Rogers is going, "Can you undo the door, please? Would you mind?" Um, and the the, the chauffeur's like, "Eh?" So, "Can you undo the car door, please?" And the chauffeur says, "Yeah, okay." And he takes the car, he opens the car door, and Bubba Rogers catches up, and Jim walks behind him, and says, "Are you okay?" He said, "Yeah, the chauffeur trapped the car door on my hand." Ah. Oh. Um, and when we get inside, I'm going to scream. <laughs> but. He said, well, what, what, why, what, what are you doing? He said, I, can't, I have to sell. I can't sell this. I'm Bubba Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. The things wrestlers go through that you sometimes don't think about because they're actually still in character and they're having to sell things and not sell things. There you go. But anyway, we get to the final match of this epic card that we've been talking about for the last hour and hour now. Which defeat, which showed New Japan's match. Um, I'm sorry, I'm excited about this match. The Destroyer, Shinya Hashimoto, defeats Masahiro Chono, everyone's favorite wrestling dad, <laughs> <laughs> in 15 minutes and 56 seconds. The classic tale of New Japan. 
two of the three musketeers. Chono had turned heel not long before this, um, because of basically because of nagging injuries. Essentially, he'd had a bunch of injuries that um, meant that he had just slowed down. He'd been uh, NWA heavyweight champion. I think he'd been IWGP heavyweight champion as well. And that kind of schedule had just given him that many injuries. He couldn't be a the map-based Luthez-style pro wrestler anymore uh, that he was before. And he became much more of a stand-up brawler, um, also aided by the fact that Steve Austin would drop him on his head in a reverse pile driver some months later and uh, pretty much nearly end his career. Funnily enough, the same maneuver that Owen Hart did to Steve Austin that caused his massive neck injury 18 months after that. Funny how the world goes around, but there you go. Um, as a result, Chono was kind of like a the lesser pure wrestler than he was before, but he was still an outstanding character and an outstanding professional wrestler. And Hashimoto versus Chono is a ticket you wanted to go by. So, what were your thoughts on this, John? Well, I think you can guess that I loved this. <laughs> <laughs> Just straight off the bat, is Hashimoto kicking ten shades of S-H-I-T out of Chono. <laughs> like, said, like, this is the start, and it, 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 it doesn't really slow down. It, w- it goes against the grain for most Hashimoto matches. Most Hashimoto matches of the era, very much like Kazuchika Okada's matches, in fact, Okada got it from Hashimoto, start slow, build and build and build and explode. And that's what Hashimoto's kind of style was. This one's a bit different than that. It was very much like explosion from the get-go. I suppose because they only had 15 minutes to play with, they were sort of like, right, we'll just just go for it. <laughs> I'll hit you, you hit me. I'm gonna use your, I'm gonna use the bullseye on your shoulder. Yeah. And we're just gonna, we're probably gonna come away with concussions because we've both kicked each other too many times in the head. But you know what? <laughs> it's gonna be all right. And, I think. Take care. And yeah, it was just a compelling as hell match to watch. I have to say, like Hashimoto and Chono were probably two of the best male wrestlers in the world. That's a hard thing to say with all of this talent on this particular card, but they were just insanely good, and they were part of New Japan's golden generation. You know, with, with Chono, Hashimoto, Kiyoji Muto, Jushin Liger, and a bunch of other guys who were just insane. And you know, this this just this just did this, everything on the tin. Chono's group, um, his longtime protege and tag team partner. On Hiroshi Tenzan came down to challenge Hashimoto at the end of this match. But this really, as the previous match exemplified what King's Road style was about, this match exemplified what Strong style should be about. It was about determination. You know, when Shinsuke Nakamura put Chaos together, his idea was to put together the defenders of Strong style because Strong style had left New Japan Pro Wrestling when Shinya Hashimoto left. That was his argument. Um, and because Hashimoto to Nakamura is exactly what a wrestler should be like. And uh, Hashimoto was the purest of all pure strong stylists, as was Chono. But he couldn't really strong style anymore because he didn't have the physical ability to, you know. And Chono's... I just love Chono. Chono is so cool. He's just the coolest wrestler there. He looks like such a dickhead in this match. (laughs) (laughs) I will point out, that's one of my friend's dads. (laughs) Alpha alpha female, uh, Jazzy Gabbard. Is the adopted daughter, uh, adult adopted daughter of Masahiro Chono. Um, she became very close friends with the family whilst wrestling in stardom because Masahiro Chono's wife is German. Oh. 
He met her whilst on excursion in the Catch Wrestling Association, wrestling for Otto Vance in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And his wife, um, who actually is, is uh, his wife, is now friends with me on LinkedIn. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn. There you the go, stories see. we can tell. Yes, you see. So, uh, uh, And she found out about this German wrestler who was wrestling for stardom. And uh, she ended up, ended up being this big press conference where they were introduced to one another. And uh, she, they've become very, very close friends. So whenever Jazzy is in Japan, she goes and stays with the Chinos. And the Chinos will come stay with her in Germany as well. So there you go. To be fair, I love Alpha Female, so that's just a nice story. To <laughs> for, the, for the Alpha, since this has happened, the COVID-19 stuff has happened, Alpha has been pushing the biography we've been working on her. So we will get back to that, because I'm waiting for more stories for her to come forward, for her to, me to finish off the biography. So it will happen, guys. I'm Ironically, it's also another person the WWE couldn't use, right? Yes, I know the story, but I've been asked not to say. So <laughs> I'm just because I review NXT UK, and I saw so oh Jazzy Gabbard's on. Oh sorry, Alpha Females on NXT UK now. Perfect. Oh yes, she's literally just a sidekick. Oh yeah, and it is like the fun you could have with Ginny and Alpha Female. Really, any booker in the UK if they had them two, the fun they could have. And no one did. <laughs> <sighs> Killer Kelly as well. Very similar kind of situation. Oh, that, that used to annoy me so much. Just like, oh, cool, Killer Kelly's back after being away for four months on injury. Oh, she's going to lose. I'm like, what? You've got yeah. Killer Kelly. How the... <sighs> Anywho. Let us get back to nice, pleasant things from 1995. And not the horrible things I have to refuse. <laughs> 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 Anywho, um, so that was like one of the weirdest and biggest cards, and the cards closed out with Yamamoto in the ring with Shinya Hashimoto, and actually it kind of reminded me of something uh, that Tama Tonga said this week actually on, on interviews, because Tama Tonga did a big interview with Sports Illustrated this week, um, and they asked him what was the difference between Japan and the States and the COVID-19 issues, and Tonga was like, um, you know, uh, we, we've we all work together as a team. It's a family. So it's not just New Japan either. Like um, Hiroshi, uh, I can't remember the the ace's name. He's completely gone out of my head. Yes. The ace. What's his name? Hiroshi Tanahashi. Hiroshi Tanahashi. I wanted to say Tenzan because of Hiroshi. The guy you have as your icon. Yeah. I, anyway, I'm having a long day. Uh, Hiroshi, <laughs> Tana, Hiroshi Tanahashi was part of a group of wrestlers, including Kyoko Inoue, who was on this card. Uh, who went to represent the whole of wrestling to the Japanese government uh, and talk. And Tama Tonga said, you know, Tanahashi's, he's our guy. He's the guy that leads all of us. He said that he's the one that represents the industry, not just New Japan, but all Japan and Noah and all the other. They all look up to him because he's the big star. You know, and I think you look back at this and this reminded me of that. It's like at the end of the night, it's Hashimoto, the IWGP heavyweight champion, the biggest draw in New Japan is representing the entire industry to Yamamoto just to say thank you for all you do for our industry. And I thought that was really interesting. It was certainly a touching way to end. Yes, definitely. What are your thoughts, having watched this card, and the kind of mythical status it's create, that, it, that it has, what are your thoughts on it? As I said, it was quite the roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> 
Surprisingly enough, it, it had what I call the Wrestle Kingdom effect in that it went really long, but it didn't necessarily feel it. I mean, don't get me wrong, that alien death match can die in a fire. I genuinely <laughs> have never been more disappointed or more cock-blocked by a title of a match ever, I don't think. And a couple of the, a couple of the matches didn't exactly land with me, but I suppose when you've got a card determined to appeal to everyone, there are going to be some hits and misses. Yeah. And it was, it was overall, it was pretty damn good. The footage wasn't the best, but, and it was certainly weird watching an AJPW match without sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, we should warn you, no commentary on this. And because it's from VHS of about 15,000 different plays, it's not the best quality video generally. But it's watchable and it's listenable, apart from the crackle. Turn the volume down a bit. It was about 15, the first 15 minutes of the AJPW match, the sound dies. So you're just sort of watching this silent movie <laughs> wrestling by John. They're kind of like, now I know for a fact I should be hearing the sounds of people slapping stakes together right now, and I can't. And at first I thought, oh, it's a video stopped. Because I'd tabbed out just to, to quickly check something. I'm like, oh no, there's literally no sound. <laughs> this is an experience. Yes, yes it was interesting to say the least. That's Kabashi trapped in a submission with a, a face looking like he's screaming, but I can't hear it. <laughs> but it yes. However, still worth a watch from a historical point of view. Oh, and I was definitely. And very glad to make this as part of the um, beginner's guide to Japanese wrestling from the Troopany show. And you can find... Sorry, Karen. This might be the favourite thing you've asked me to watch so far. Oh, awesome. And and you've had me watching FMW stuff, but like, just from seeing the wealth of companies that were operating at the time and the quality they were putting out, it's sort of nice to just remember that there's a whole industry out there. And there still is, technically. It's just... You don't see it a lot of the time these days because a lot of the the smaller promotions are all sort of self-contained. Yes, and on days like today where I'm looking at my Twitter trending and it says Michael Gove, David Irving, Holocaust. (laughs) Mine just says, may the fourth be with you, Star Wars Day, Monday Motivation, COVID-19, and Monday Morning. Why the hell is the hashtag Monday Morning? Well, I don't know. Twitter just, is weird. Just another manic Monday, as Prince once said. Anywho, thank you very much for listening to the Troopany Show today. I appreciate your input. If you would like to support us, please go to our Patreon, where you can keep the Troopany Show free forever for everyone. That's Patreon, the Troopany Show. You can also find us on Facebook, the Troopany Show. Where can we find you on Twitter, sir, and your other social medias? Well, you can find me on Twitter at John Deathman. Or just look for the name Mr. Deathmatch, John Dinsdale. There you'll find links to basically everything you need to find, which is my writing, where I'm usually fighting with MLW, so that's fun. I once watched Manswana <laughs> stamp on a clown that was on fire. And okay. yeah, the, just reviewing stuff, interviewing people, and just trying to make the best of a crappy situation. As we all are indeed. You can find the entire history of the Japanese Beginner's Guide 
to Japanese, Japanese wrestling if you want something long to listen to. There's about 54 episodes now. Might be 55 with this one. Um, there's over 50 hours of me, Chelsea, John, Alex, the other Alex, uh, Christy and Marcus and Sai uh, and even uh, Mike Freeland from uh, MLW's Wrestling Rewind. Sorry, MLW's uh, ECW show with uh, uh, Mikey Whipwreck and um, Jerry Lynn. Yeah, Freeland did used to do the Wrestling Rewind. And he also came and did a couple of these shows with us as well. So if you want to have a listen to that, um, you can go back and listen to those that will keep you busy in these horrible times. But anyway, thank you for listening to me today. My name is James Troop, and you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter. Take care, and we will see you next week. A final word from our sponsors, Indie Empire Magazine is now Empire Magazine, and we'll be relaunching soon. And of course, powerslam.tv, where you can get a free month when you use the code MULLETWATCH. Bye. Bye. Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.